Hello and welcome to the Colts Cover 2 podcast. I am Joel A. Erickson. I am joined, as always, by Nate Atkins. Nate is on the road right now. Nate is not anywhere near Indianapolis. Nate, where are you at this point in time? Now I am in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, just talked to Will Levis and some of his teammates a couple hours ago. And, uh, you know, yesterday was in Columbus, Ohio. Got to see CJ Stroud throw and talk to him and his teammates. And so this is the pro day circuit right now where, uh, you know, go from Columbus one day to Lexington and uh, the next day. And then, you know, next week I'll get out to Anthony Richardson's at Florida's and getting to most of them, except for, uh, except for Bryce Young's at Alabama was the one that uh, was just really hard to fit into the schedule. And, uh, you know, as we're making choices, you kind of, you kind of narrow it down based on who's most likely for the Colts, which, uh, which changed a little bit with a certain trade, but uh, we're getting to most of them at least and getting, it's just a little something different, different way to kind of look and understand these guys and maybe what we've seen before. Yeah. The the hard part with Bryce Young, just giving everyone the background on is you, they, they went uh, three in a row. They went Stroud, Young, Levis. Um, Levis is the furthest away. Um, he's, he's all the way in Tuscaloosa. You'd have had to go to Columbus from Col- Columbus to Tuscaloosa and then back to Lexington. Um, most of these, the throwing sessions, at least, or the the pro days at least start in the morning. I know CJ Stroud didn't yeah. throw into like two or three, but you were there much earlier than that. Um, one of the other things, so so I, I think with, with Young, we kind of just decided he's probably gone. Um, yeah. Which most people think he's going to the Texans. Most people think he's going to Houston, is my understanding. Yeah, and that was... When I got to the combine, again, that was right before or a little bit before the Panthers traded up. That was sort of one of the, you know, the worst kept secrets of the combine was how much the Texans liked Bryce Young, even to the point where, you know, the the idea for them is that they may not be a team that has to take a quarterback this year. It's either the thinking of of people around that team was just it's very likely going to be Bryce Young or if somehow Bryce Young goes number one to the Panthers, then. You know, they may not take a quarterback, but you, you think it through now with where the Colts are sitting is that even if, you know, even if the Texans decide they wanted to trade back for some reason, if they just decide they wanted to get the picks or, or that they're not close enough, they'll trade with other teams, but they're not going to trade with the Colts. So we know that the Colts are getting at best the third quarterback choice off the board. And, uh, you know, it's you can never say never on on any of this. But I think Bryce Young is the one that it's very hard to see not, you know, it's very hard to see him getting to three with the Texans sitting there at two. And uh, so I do think the, all, all the other guys are at least somewhat in play, even though it certainly felt yesterday being at C.J. Stroud's that, uh, that that there is very much trending like a, t- a Panthers pick. They had almost everybody there. Their GM was there. Frank Reich was there. Jim Caldwell was there. Uh, and not only that, but they were following C.J. kind of every step. Uh, even to the interview process, and you know, Josh McCown got caught on some cameras making a joke about when he moves to Charlotte, and so that's certainly where it's trending. I've seen this flip before in the past, though, um, so that's the one I don't I don't rule out. But Bryce Young was the one that uh, that felt least likely for him to actually have any chance of getting to number three. Yeah, Carolina is taking advantage of having the number one pick by essentially taking this enormous traveling rotating. Uh, group traveling party with them to all these pro days. From from what I've been able to see on Twitter, I mean, you're you're not in Tuscaloosa, whatever. From what I've been able to see, it does seem like 
Um, it does seem like the, the Panthers have everybody there in Tuscaloosa, too. They must have just got back on the team plane and headed down there. So um, uh, it was really hard to ignore some of the pictures and stuff uh, of, yeah. of Frank Reich and Josh McCown kind of always being wherever C.J. Stroud was, no matter where it was, being right behind him when he threw. Um, that's, that's the thing about having the number one pick, though. You don't have to disguise your intentions to anyone. It's just like the only the only the only person you have to answer to is the NFL who wants to keep the the number one pick a secret, even though they very rarely end up pulling that off. But yeah, uh, the way the Panthers are operating is the way you'd operate if you have the number one pick. I, we get to do what we want because we're making the pick that we want. Uh, enough about yep. the Panthers, though. This is the Colts Cover Two podcast, and um, it does seem like CJ Stroud is probably gone to the Panthers. That's what everyone's saying. And everyone seems to think within the league. Um, but if Stroud was available at four, if he, if, if everyone's somehow wrong and he's available at four, what did you learn yesterday at the pro day? I think the pro day for him was mostly just confirmation. Um, the thing I was interested to see was whether he would run the 40, because when we talked to him in Indianapolis, he talks quite a bit, openly about how he knows people question his athleticism. He doesn't think it's a fair criticism, but understands why people, you know, are wondering a little bit based on how little he ran in college. And he said his goal was to, to show that. So he chose not to run the 40 yesterday. And that, so, so there wasn't sort of like a new element to it. I asked him about that and he just said that none of the teams asked him to run it. And it almost came off like that, that made it, he seemed like a guy who's pretty confident that he's going very, very high in this draft into a place he wants to go to. That was right after he talked to uh, Frank Reich and Josh McCown, and he met with the owners the night before. So I don't know if that played in. He hasn't. He just didn't prepare for that either. He just put his focus into trying to have the best throwing day you could have, and he had one of the best that um, that I've seen. Uh, one of the better ones you could you could measure through the years for whatever that's worth. It's throwing on air, of course, and it's throwing to. Marvin Harrison Jr. and Jackson Smith and the Jigba uh, in an indoor, you know, setting where they they pick the routes. And so it was always suited for him to look really good. But, you know, I did some tracking with another friend of mine uh, on the Ohio State. We had him for 52 of 58, uh, you know, the, the throws we decided to count. And that's of those six misses, I would say maybe two of them were actual misses that were not drops or, you know, I actually just really bad balls probably just two of them he had a, th- a low one and he had an out route that was kind of just just sailed on him but other than that it was kind of what you've grown to expect out of him and just really uh firm ball placement consistent timing and just really what stood out to me was how nice of a ball he threw down the field because we've kind of always seen him do those out routes the slant routes the, the kind of the easy stuff he made he he takes the layups like um, like you want but he showed off a, a really nice arm. Not it's not Anthony Richardson, Will Levis level arm strength of just you know cannon it down the field, but it's one of those where he was throwing a little bit on the move and letting his legs add just a little bit of life to the arm while also keeping it very controlled. And just the accuracy and the placement of of those deep balls, um, especially along the sideline, I think he just really showed. It just kind of backed up what you thought of him or what many people think of him really when you go back to the Georgia film, especially, which is this guy is incredibly accurate at all parts of the field. And that's true. Even when he's on the run, we didn't see the running part as much in college, but I think between that, 
last game against Georgia and a little bit of the pro day showed a little bit more of that. You know, it just kind of kind of confirmed that I think he's uh, he's the thrower that you would feel best about in this class. If that if that is the one thing you're about throwing to all levels of the field, but both accuracy and a strong enough arm and ability to throw on the move with velocity, I think he backed that up at the pro day and uh, and it very much kind of came off like a, a, a guy that. Uh, that was ready for that. And the, the other thing that was just nice to see as an aside was um, right after he finished, he went and embraced in this big emotional hug with his mom and talked a lot about what this journey has been like. Um, he's He's got a kind of great backstory where he did not go to a, you know, he grew up in the LA area, but he did not go to a, one of the powerhouse high schools. Um, he kind of had to rebuild, help rebuild that program. His, his dad wasn't around, um, you know, as he's growing up and he's just kind of had to, he and his mom have had to make this work, this dream work. And they're right here on the doorstep now where he could be the number one pick in the draft. So I just think it was sort of a, that throwing session, while it was not the most difficult thing he's done, it was sort of, it did sort of put into perspective all the work that's come before this, all the things he's done on the field. And then the preparation leading up to it, to be able to put on a show like that, that was pretty nice, uh, pretty entertaining to watch. The 40 thing, honestly, after seeing him on the Georgia tape and looking, I just, while you were talking, I was just kind of looking at some other 40 times. You know, Daniel Jones ran 4.81 at the combine when he got drafted. Josh Allen, I think, was in the 4.76 range. I mean, you can be effective with your legs even if you didn't run a crazy 40. Um, and so I don't think. I don't think that necessarily, you know, I don't think that necessarily would do anything to me um, as far as just being worried about it. It's kind of weird that we're talking about, like, I totally understand and, and believe that mobility and escapability and all that stuff adds a layer to a quarterback's game. But it's weird how we're talking about it now. It feels like in this draft where it's like a, it's like a necessary has to have four four speed to count and I, I don't know how i i don't know if i agree with that um you know i i i'm yeah. i want the i want the player to be able to use his legs i don't know if i need him to be um if if he's a good enough thrower i don't know if i need him to be you know justin fields or something yeah it is interesting how this has gone this year does seem to have a bigger emphasis on that i don't remember you know, I don't remember analyzing Joe Burrow, you know, nitpicking how fast his 40 would be or. Yeah, the, what, thing with him was his, the thing with him was his arm strength, right? Like we didn't talk a lot about his movement. Yeah. Yeah. It was like he he was he ended up being a surefire number one pick because of the full body of work, which was good enough athleticism, but not like this dynamic runner. I think what may be a little different this year, I guess, is this that like. Of the four prospects, two of them, the top four, um, four guys considered at the top, two of them are like dynamic runners who are very raw passers. And so if you're that in love with the rushing element of their game, then that's why you like those guys. If you're just going to – if you're not going to weigh that heavily, then I don't know how Anthony Richardson or, or Will Levis could be as high up there for you um, unless you're, you, you just think it's really, really – you know, valuable thing. I think part of it's watching the success that Jalen Hurts just had runner up in the MVP by first 
you know, coming into the league as a guy who could run, had to kind of develop a little bit more as a passer, though I think he's further along than um, than Richardson and Levis are, uh, or at least Richardson is. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's it's just like it, it, it has become one, this new fascination this year. And it is interesting, like with CJ, I don't, I don't think he needed to run the 40. I do think that it's one of those where it also wouldn't have hurt him to run it. And if he runs like four, seven or better, like it, it just, it would quiet the little concerns that are out there. But when he said that comment to me about, uh, you know, none of the teams asked him and he didn't need to run. It, he didn't need to prepare for it. That almost came off to me. Like that he's narrowed this down to a couple teams. He think he could, he could go to, and they're not concerned with it. And what they're mostly concerned with is just sort of the ability to operate in a setting like this uh, and, and back up everything else that they thought about him, which is exactly what he went out there and did. So, uh, so you, it'll think, be interesting you, think, you think he knows where he's going? I think he knows he's going number one, or at least feels that way. And I think the Panthers, the sense I got is they're pretty they're, – I, mean, I know they're looking deeply into Bryce Young right now and do the same thing with meeting with – uh, me with him for dinner and whatnot. I, I definitely think CJ's a strong leader in that. I will also say, though, that, like, <laughs> they get a lot of time before they make the pick and a lot of voices that are going to be in there. And this this stuff does get convoluted at a certain point. You can start talking yourself into certain upside. There's things that they may see from, you know, they haven't gone Anthony Richardson's pro day, and I don't know what he'll show there. Uh, but I would be I'd be pretty surprised if it's not CJ at this point. But again, the draft isn't today. So you talked to Will Levis this morning. Um, you, you've got the throwing tomorrow. Uh, what what do you think about? And one of the one of the reasons we're taping this now instead of waiting to let you up is number one to have a, a podcast this week, but also number two, uh, next week I'm at the owners meeting. That's why I'm not on the road right now. Um, like in terms of like you know splitting this up or going to a different pro day. Part of the reason I'm not on the road is because I'll be on the I'll be in Arizona for three days essentially, starting on Sunday. Um, and you know, with with Levis's pro day, it feels I think to everybody. I just saw Daniel Jeremiah's latest mock, and I think Levis went like 19th or something further down. It feels like it's kind he's kind of fallen behind. What what do you think? What do you think you learned this morning from talking to him? And what do you think he could do to get himself back into? Is there anything he could do to get himself back in? Because I always I always pay a little bit of attention to Jeremiah's because I think he tries to do. Doesn't Jeremiah try to do his based off of what he's hearing rather than what his board says? Yeah, and he's, he's very well connected with people in front offices. And so because well, he was a scout, th- he's yeah. got scouting, yeah. he's got scouting buddies. Yeah. And he works for the NFL now. So I do think Will Levis is he's got ground to make up. Part of it is like if you went to the combine throwing session, you know, you could you you could be wowed by or the combine workout for the quarterbacks. You could be wowed by Richardson's, you know, historic measurables. You know, he set the all time record for the vertical jump, tied it for the broad jump, ran a four four forty, was second in the velocity meter, like all that stuff is impressive. CJ made up for it, you know, in the actual throwing session, just really looked like, again, the best uh, thrower at all levels of the field, looked much more consistent and ready than Richardson did. The one thing that was interesting talking to Levis was just kind of how aware he is of the narrative, the criticisms, the pros and cons that are associated with his game. 
you got to understand will is a he's a fifth year senior he's played at a couple different programs like he had to he had to go pick kentucky out as a new route uh when he lost the job to sean clifford at penn state he's kind of been thinking in the mode of creating a career out of this i think a little longer than quarterbacks normally are at least some of the guys in this class so he's very much paying attention to this and he's and the one thing that was interesting that that he said, like he he understands there's pros and cons. He's got room to grow. He he like he had the quote at the combine about how he's got a cannon, but he knows that he's got to you know, he's got to improve some of the consistency. He's got to be more a little bit more durable than he's been to maintain his style as a runner. He mentioned that like he thought um, the questions about his accuracy were not very fair. Um, if you he just thinks if you go back and look at his completion percentage, um, which actually is very very high compared to. Some of the guys he gets comped with, he's, he's always kind of lined up with Anthony Richardson as sort of the uh, bit more of a project passer. Um, he's compared to Josh Allen, which, of course, is a very nice comparison, except the difference is that he feels like he's more accurate coming in the league than he's getting credit for. And I do think that goes back to uh, his throwing session at the combine was just it wasn't the best day. It wasn't necessarily bad. It just wasn't he, he I think he was so animated to show off that cannon he talked about that it was about an arm strength show rather than a deep ball accuracy show. And he just missed a few times in those settings. And it only really mattered because of the comparative element of he was throwing there in front of, you know, or right around Anthony Richardson and CJ Stroud, who showed off different ranges of amazing. You know, Anthony Richardson had the record, you know, all the, all the records for athleticism. CJ was the best thrower, consistent thrower. And Will just didn't really win in a certain area that day. I think he was just trying to win the arm strength battle, and and it got a little away from him. So this pro day where they get to script it, they get to pick the routes, he's throwing to receivers, he knows. I think this is where he can show a little bit more of that, um, the accuracy and the touch and the consistency. If he can sort of focus on that area a little bit more than than the downfield throws. Um, I assume that, that the way he was talking today made me think that that's, been an emphasis for him that he wants to do that he said one meeting with a team uh or top 30 visits so far but he's going to meet with teams right after the pro day tomorrow so he's very much thinking about this as like this is his his way to show uh show them something to where again it's like these pro days aren't going to create something brand new that uh, i mean it, sometimes teams get wowed by a pro day like happened with zach wilson but for the most part what they're supposed to do is either confirm the tape or make you go back to it and see if you miss something. I think for him, he's hoping that teams will, if they're impressed by the pro day and the way he lays it out in the meetings, go back to the film and think, you know, maybe he's more accurate than he gets credit for. I, I think sometimes, you know, you associate, there, there are negatives in his game as far as he takes a lot of sacks and he turns it over more than you would like. But that to him is a different area than accuracy the ability to actually throw it and get it in the right ball placement most of the time i think he thinks he's really good at that or, or pretty good at it and that's what he's going to try and show tomorrow yeah the sacks and the uh the turnovers are the stuff i've read about the most from guys like jeremiah and it's interesting that he's focused in on accuracy because i i keep thinking of it as a or at least the way he's been, been presented to me again I've said on this podcast before, I, I do a terrible job of quarterback scouting because I just watch the live games. But I saw a couple of games where he was prone to negative big plays. Um, and that would be the question I'd want to have answered more than uh, uh, more than the accuracy. Um, Richardson will be interesting next week. 
Anthony Richardson will be very interesting next week. What what day is that? Is that the thirtieth? Yep, Thursday. It's the Thursday. So by then you're going to have uh by then Colts fans and you will have a lot of information coming out of the owners' meetings because I'm gonna get to talk to Shane Steichen. I'm going to get to talk to Chris Ballard. We'll talk to Jim Irsay. You'll have a lot more of an idea of where the organization sits uh, on how they see this thing. And we're going to get to this here in a second when we talk about free agency. Um, normally, free agency would lead a podcast like this, but you're on the road at Pro Days. Quarterback is what matters. That's what we're going to stick with here. Um, and I think I think it'll be interesting because Richardson's Pro Day um, Richardson's Pro Day feels important to me because so much of what the, what people are seeing in him is traits. And it's like he's he's almost become a a quarterback who's less about the tape and the way people think about the tape. Like they they don't when people say look at the tape, they think about like plays being made. But I think the way it works with Richardson is that teams are looking at the tape and seeing traits that can that can go to the next level. And that's kind of what you're showing off in a pro day, too. So I think that I think that his pro day is probably the most interesting of the four. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, on one hand, he showed a lot of traits and tools already at the Combine, and there's question of, like, obviously he can't top some of the things he did, the records he set, You at least you wouldn't think. I, I assume he's not going to do the broad jump, the vertical jump, the 40-yard dash. Um, that stuff is is there, and it's it's some of its Combine records. So uh, he, he it's another chance for him to throw in, in – maybe try and show a little bit more consistency when he was lined up again, he had to throw right next to CJ Stroud and again, the receivers he hasn't thrown to and that he's a young quarterback and he, he didn't do as well as Stroud did in those settings. Um, this one, he's throwing more with receivers he's thrown with, although, you know, it, they didn't have the best, uh, doesn't seem like they had the best chemistry uh, when they were playing together. So uh, we'll see how much of an edge that is, but it's at least throws that he can script and, Again, we'll see if he can make some of the strides on on the throwing day from the combine. But it also just be I'm just interested to see how he operates in this setting, how his teammates and coaches speak about him. I just a lot of this is like he's the one that is so young and raw compared to these others. Where you've got Will Levis, who's a fifth year senior, and then you've got Bryce Young and C.J. Stroud, who are two year starters, but you know at the highest level, played in the highest games, uh, played in the college football playoff like they've, they've been the face of the program of the two co- two of the colleges that are you know borderline pro teams in the way they operate it, and, and they're just as people a little bit more just a little bit more mature having gone through that anthony richardson is is very young one-year starter very rarely do you see a one-year starter you know make this kind of leap so i i think this is where just getting an understanding of him as a competitor him as a teammate as a leader um, from talking to all the players that the that Florida will have there, again they'll have guys that are entering the draft. They'll have teammates he's going to throw to. They'll have teammates that come out and support. These events are are decent opportunities to just get a sense for kind of how this guy fits in the ecosystem he's in. And through that, you're adding that to the idea of how can he project and grow in your environment. So it'll be very interesting to see him in in his own backyard and, and kind of how he owns that setting. I think that's probably an underrated part of going to the pro days for you is getting a chance to talk to the teammates too. Um, and not that you're not that you're really expecting any of them to say, "Oh no, that guy's terrible. I can't believe he's going as high as he's going to go." But it is. It, I do think it can be revealing to hear a little bit more from the teammates about you know what what they've got going on. Um, 
So Nate's on the pro day circuit. I'll be at the owners meetings. Uh, I promise one of the questions we'll ask is a version of why didn't you do more in free agency? Um, the my operating assumption is that knowing that they're probably going to draft a rookie quarterback, knowing that that quarterback may not be ready to start right away. The Colts are um, both continuing Chris Ballard's long-standing reticence to do a lot in free agency and also sort of taking stock of where they are as a franchise and more willing to um, sit back and build rather than go for a big move. Um, and, you know, they haven't necessarily made bigger moves in the past, but they have made go get it, like go trading for Buckner was a move that was this, that was supposed to put them into better contention, supposed to be like a finishing move type thing. Uh, it, did get, it did help them get to the playoffs. Uh, Ngakwe and uh, Stefan Gilmore, you know, were last year were sort of finishing piece type acquisitions in term both in terms of their salary and in terms of their stature as players they, they haven't really done that so far you know with the exception of i look at the matt gay signing as a long-term signing but i think you could make the case that that would one be a short-termer we're just trying to have the right kicker but everything else um samson abukum taven brian taven brian not so much he's sort of filling a different spot um but Isaiah McKenzie, they're either they're all kind of either tread water signings or like Abukum to me is a long term try to build this defensive line for a couple of years out. So I, I think that's what's going on. I'll be really interested to see what Jim Irsay in particular says about um, not just the teams, what the team what the team believes it can be competitively this year, but also what that means for Chris Ballard's job security because I've heard I've heard that talked about in two different ways. I have my own take on it, but I'll let you go for a little bit in, on, on what this season is shaping up to look like. Yeah, it's interesting because Chris Ballard, you know, the two times we've talked to him since the season ended, uh, I guess we talked to him three times with the Steichen introductory presser. He's made references to how he has to grow. He knows he's stubborn and dogmatic, but he was challenging himself to grow. And I know from the outside, it looks like Nothing's changed that much. They're not doing a ton in free agency, um, you know, not adding offensive weapons. I think some of that is fair, not training up in the draft. Um, some of that is fair. I think he's he's he hasn't completely reversed course, but I do think he's there's a little bit of difference with the uh, Abukum signing and the Mac A signings. I think we're a little bit more aggressive than he's done um, just in terms of like it gets lost because it's a kicker, but it was the most money they've ever paid that's ever been paid to a kicker. And it is a five-year deal and it's in free agency. In free most agency. Most money paid to a kicker in free agency because Justin Tucker will never reach free agency. That's right. That's that's the only reason. So there's there's that and then the even like the Samson and Bukum signing, like they they did a little bit more for that than they normally do. He kind of laid that out when we talked to him uh on Zoom where you know, he he really wanted some guarantees built into this and got them in, in just the structure of the deals where um, they're, they're kind of tied to him for a little bit longer and it escalates. Like, it's just, it's it's getting into the weeds, but I do think Chris Ballard has tried to 
he, he's made a couple of aggressive moves. It's just not a lot of them, and it's not maybe one name or position that, that jumps out there. What I think is different, though, is or what's notable is those two signings are kicker and defensive end, and I think it's hard for them right now to apply the same approach on offense because they're not entirely sure where their offense is going. And when they're not sure, free agents are definitely not sure. And when that's the case, it's very hard to reach a middle ground on that. It's hard for, you know, outside wide receivers or left tackles or right guards or tight ends to see this place and and figure out like, what is this going to look like? They want to know who their quarterback's going to be. They want to know, is he going to be, is he going to start this year? Is it going to be Gardner Minshew? And every guy we've talked to has kind of given a little bit of insight into that trepidation. Uh, Gardner said he has no idea what his role is going to be or what this year is going to entail. What's interesting is Gardner Minshew, until they signed Isaiah McKenzie, Gardner was the one outside offensive sign they made. And he he very much came off to me as a guy that's he's very free flowing and um, he'll kind of he's not as tied to like what next year and next year and next year is going to look like he's living in the moment. He talked about having fun and seeing where that leads. That's just not how a lot of other free agents look at this. And so I just think the Colts are, they're caught in the same spot that they were last year until they got Matt Ryan, which is until they know who the quarterback is or have a general idea of what type of quarterback, what type of timeline he's going to be on. It's just very hard to build out the rest of the offense. And it's hard on both ends. It's hard for them to know exactly what fits around it and it's hard to sell free agents on that vision when they don't fully have the vision either so it's just a bit of a weird holding pattern too isaiah mckenzie um just to get into it i mean technically technically uh isaiah mckenzie is a veteran receiver signing i haven't seen the numbers on that deal yet uh they haven't come through Uh, i usually have access to them i think people who follow me on twitter know that I, i haven't seen them come through yet i'm not really expecting that to be a very big deal it's kind of a bargain signing. He was on a two-year, $4.4 million with, uh, deal with Buffalo, and he's he got released from that. Uh, so you assume that the Colts are getting him at a discount. I, I also think, as much as I like Isaiah McKenzie the person, Isaiah McKenzie the player has not been more than a rotational piece, really. Like, he was the Bills' starting slot receiver nominally last year, but they spent a lot of time at the end of the season trying to replace him. And then did replace him in the offseason um, by signing Deontay Hardy from the Saints, of all people, who's not necessarily a, a big name slot receiver signing either. So, you know, McKenzie, I like I like his game. I don't I don't know that I'm expecting big things from him. He's been in a very good offense the last couple of, the last couple of years. He had 42 catches last year. Paris Gamble, who the, the Colts let walk. I, I don't really fully understand that because his deal is super incentive laden. Um, they let him go for a very reasonable price. And Paris Campbell had 62 catches in a much worse passing offense. Much worse. Yeah. Well, with Paris, I think it's all about the fact that he, he realized at some point he needs to, he needs to sign a one-year deal to, you know, he had the one healthy season, but he really needs to produce a little bit more and just try and get in a consistent environment to really show his worth as a football player, not just a guy who can stay on the field. And if you're going to do that, you need to know who's throwing the ball. And so going to New York with Daniel Jones in the system that Brian Dable has laid out and a place where there's not a number one wide receiver, um, you know, that that is that was an enticing opportunity for him. It's hard to look at the same situation in Indy 
and feel confident at all that, that he can produce here right now. We don't know who the quarterback's going to be. They could draft one. He could sit for a while. Uh, you know, we don't know what the offensive line is going to look like. And then there's still Michael Pittman Jr. and Alec Pierce, and it's a fairly run-heavy offense. So it's really about, like, if you're going to do a prove-it-year deal, you need to go somewhere you feel like I can – I have the chance to be as – I can produce as much as I can here. And then in a year from now, sign maybe that, you know, three-plus-year deal. So I think it's less about the money this year. It's more about the opportunity to make money next year. Um. We'll see if that works out for him. The Giants offense last year was fairly run heavy as well. Um, yeah. I, I just thought I'm just. They just have no one to throw the ball to, though, is kind of what. From a financial. Saying. Well, they have Darren Waller now, <laughs> but he didn't know that when he signed, I think. Um, I, th- I don't think he knew that Darren Waller was, was, was going to be there when he signed. Uh, the thing, the thing that, that I think Colts fans noticed and that I noticed is just it's essentially. The only cash you're going to have to pay out for sure with his deal is probably three million, and then after that, it's really more, it's for cap purposes. It's a four point seven. This is super in the weeds. If you don't follow me, I'm sorry. I can't break it down any other way. For cap purposes, it's a four point seven million dollar deal because he has a per game roster bonus uh, that adds up to one point seven million if he hits all of them, and it would be considered likely to be earned. I'm pretty sure because he played in all seventeen games last year. But from a cash perspective, you're only guaranteed to pay out $3 million. And then everything else, the rest of his $3.7 million that's possible is all tied to playing time, catches, receiving yards, and touchdowns. It just felt like, uh, uh, I mean, with the Colts cap space, I would have spent $7 million on Paris Campbell for a year. I would have. Yeah. Uh, it's a fair point. And I, I do think they had a chance at it, too, because he, he liked living here and he liked He's friends with the guys in the receiving core. He loved playing for Reggie Wayne. Um, so it was definitely an option on the table. Maybe, yeah, maybe they just, maybe they didn't pony up as much as they could have. I just know that, um, you know, with some of those incentives, if, if they're based on performance, like Paris was a great soldier last year, but there's no doubt that there was a toll to playing with three different starting quarterbacks. And this year, Right now, if you had to assess the situation, it feels like just as likely that there's going to be two different starting quarterbacks, and we have no idea the timeline of it. At some point, that it just wears on people. It just it's worn on everybody in this franchise. This that rotating cast of quarterbacks. So I think almost that you bring up a good point about like yes, the I mean the Giants are run heavy. Dan Jones is good. He's not like it's not like you're playing with Patrick Mahomes. But I think it's the idea of playing with the same quarterback for 17 games and seeing how that builds. And knowing, yeah, knowing what your role is going to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, that's that's kind of the question with – that's kind of the question for me going forward with a lot of the stuff the team has done, and both in free agency and what, how the players are going to react to it. Like, you know, how do you, how do you respond when maybe your team is not trying to compete for the division title? Um, you know, not, not that they're trying to lose games, or I'm not saying they're tanking or anything like that. But they they don't the the trade trading away Stephon Gilmore to me was a sign that it was a different calculus for this team in terms of when they think they're going to contend. And it's just it's going to be interesting to hear what the Colts say about that and 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 what players say about that. Now I think when we get to talk to players, they're not going to be you know players always talk about how they're going to win every game. So. I don't know that we're going to get a lot, but it is interesting because it does feel like 
at the very least, the Colts are sort of treading water or going to tread water or okay with treading water this season, knowing that a rookie quarterback is is likely in any case to not be um, a, di- a difference maker in terms of wins right away. And especially if you're not going to play him very early, which seems seems possible with, you know, Richardson or Levis or or in the 5% chance that they um, decide to take Will Anderson at four and, and draft him in hooker, as, as our columnist suggested today, uh, Greg Doyle suggested today. You know, I, I think it seems like maybe they're comfortable with that. Uh, Minshew, Minshew as well did not sign for, I, I think Gardner Minshew probably is worth more than this as a backup, but the deal he signed is much less than like Mariota got or, Heineke got or Andy Dalton got uh, a lot of Jacoby Brissett, a lot of backup sign for more money than Gardner Minshew. And it just feels like more the Colts are because the Colts have cap space. They have more than $20 million in cap space as we sit here right now. And I, I just, it just feels like, it just feels like the Colts are maybe okay with um, trying to build the roster long-term instead of worrying about the short-term and and maybe this is maybe this is a treading water year uh, in Indianapolis. I, I, I that's kind of what I think it is. I'm just hesitant to say it because no one has has kind of said it out loud yet. Yeah, I, I, that's where I'm leaning right now too. I'm I'm also just trying to let it play out because they could do something that that dramatically changes that. Like they, there's still moves to be made both in free agency if they want to, so sort of the second wave, or you know. <laughs> you can't rule out them actually doing something bold that we just don't know about. Like if they wanted to go after Lamar Jackson, that's that would change. That would change everything. And it would also make me wonder why they traded Stephon Gilmore. Well, the argument would be if they got Lamar Jackson, but uh, you can, you can create cap space in other ways. That's true. You Um, don't have to get rid of, of Stephon Gilmore to do it. There are plenty of other ways to create cap space. Yeah. If they if they if they made that or they probably will make that argument at some point. But just in terms of what you can do with the cap, if you actually if you were actually going to get Lamar Jackson, it's it's the Saints have 15 million dollars in cap space right now. That's all like if anybody who's been following the discourse about the Saints and like how much they don't have and blah blah blah. Like the Saints have $15 million in cap space. There's a way to get there to keep Stephon Gilmore if you're going for Lamar Jackson. The, the Gilmore trade is actually maybe the thing that makes me think that the Jackson thing isn't a possibility the most. Because if, I, if I'm getting Lamar Jackson, I'm going for the division title now. Oh, I agree with you. Um, I'm just like, we're trying to think through how Chris Ballard looks at this. And I just know, like, you know, that report came out, I think it was ESPN, that teams. Teams were aware that Ryan Kelly and uh, Moali Cox were also available. Those guys, of course, have not been traded yet. Uh, I don't think they're released. The same or released. Um, Chris Ballard, like, there were people who are like, you just traded Stephon Gilmore for a fifth. Um, but Chris Ballard loves late picks. He just does. He just, all picks are incredibly valuable to him. So I think there was. <laughs> It's a better. It's clearly a better trade in his mind than than I think people on the outside are judging. And I just, I agree with you. It, it very much looks like they're they're looking more long term. I think Abukum and Matt Gay were both those kind of signings. Um, the other ones, Gardner and, and McKenzie, are more like you need guys in those spots this year. So 
you know, don't spend a whole lot of money and get them. But, you know, I just, there are still moves out there that could happen. And I just think it really comes down to, I don't think they know exactly what their direction is. I don't think they're sitting here at this moment saying, we know that we're going to trade to number three and draft this guy, or we know we're going to sit at four and draft this guy. And without being in that space, it's hard to figure out exactly the timeline and the trajectory for each quarterback and then how you build that out. So the easiest thing to do is just accept, hey, this year, no matter who the quarterback is, if it's a rookie, it's going to be a learning growth type of year. And, you know, we'll invest more of our resources once we can sort of spin it forward and once he's more ready. That's it's just one train of thought because the Panthers are in the same spot they were in and they're doing the opposite. They trade all the way up to number one. And now they're, you know, they're signing Adam Thielen. They're going out and getting uh, players for their offense to give that rookie the best chance right away. That's one way to do it. I also think, though, that the Colts, especially Chris Ballard, they think they have more on offense than than maybe on the outside, it seems. I think they think they're actually decently well-suited for a rookie. It's just about quarterback stability and, uh, you know, I, I think that to them that, that could solve a lot of it. But until they know who their quarterback is, they don't know if they'll have quarterback stability. It's just one of the challenges of this offseason. And it's not to make it any, you know, it's it's not it's not to be negative about it. It's just like this could turn out very positive based on who they get. And maybe there's signings after the draft they can add or trade. There's receivers up for trade um, to, su- to support that guy. But it's just right now I think it's just hard for them to lock in. That's one of the prices of not trading to number one. The Panthers can operate in that mindset of, Either they're drafting C.J. Stroud or maybe they've got it down to two guys and we're just going to go ahead and pepper them with veterans and we're going to like start him from day one. Almost certainly the guy they're drafting is starting from day one. It's just a different mentality. This is just a weird space the Colts are in at the moment. Um, for that reason, this is where we're on the podcast. I'll be interested to see what Jim Irsay says. Last year, when we asked him about the job security of Frank Reich and Chris Ballard, he talked a lot about chasing down Tennessee. And um, I think that was probably the canary in the coal mine that we should have paid more attention to as far as Reich's job security. I'm a little surprised that it didn't include Ballard because that's how he talked about it last year. That's how he asked about it. But I'm expecting that there's been a lot of talk about how Chris Ballard is coaching for his job. I don't think. That's nece- my guess is that that's not necessarily true. I think when when Ballard was brought was kept here, and we'll see what Ursay says. But my my assumption is that when they brought him in, or when they brought in when they allowed Ballard to run the search and stay, and he didn't get fired after what happened last season, that it's now Ballard and Steichen until Ursay wants to make a full regime change. And I don't think you would do that to. Steichen after one season where you didn't move up to number one and didn't necessarily got him a developmental quarterback. I don't think you necessarily judge this season with a developmental quarterback for Ballard either. Um, and I know, I know there's a lot of Colts fans who don't want to hear that. They'd love it if he's on the hot seat and they have to win this year, but it's bad business. Number one, it's bad business in the NFL and, and, Ursay knows this to have a disconnect between your GM and your head coach, which is inevitably set up if you hire a GM after you've hired F with an incumbent head coach. Um, number two, 
Ursay just Ursay likes Ballard. Yeah. He likes Ballard more than he liked his head coach. Now, this isn't a discussion about like should he still be here. I think we're well past those discussions. I, I still think that Ballard's insistence on relying on draft picks and uh um developmental players ascending from backups to starters probably plays a bigger role than in in what happened last year than than honestly anything the coach did that's what i think but there's no point in talking about it that way because he's not getting fired this year and what the point i'm talking talking about now is i'm going into arizona trying to get an answer from Ursay on i don't think it's going to happen this next year either just knowing what they're knowing what they're probably going to do at quarterback and knowing where they're headed you don't they didn't trade up to number one if you're trying to save your job and you had to get a rookie quarterback wouldn't you trade to number one that's what i would do yeah i i especially when the next two quarterbacks are developmental um yeah and i i don't know that stroud or or young instantly changes the the panthers or or texans fortunes i don't know that but if 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 I was if I was GMing for my job, I'm not going for a player who might not be able to. I, I would I would be avoiding the player that I think has to sit for a full year before they play. Well, we've seen GMs fighting for their jobs before, and it's it's usually the same thing. They spend a ton in free agency and they trade up in the draft. I remember like Ryan Pace trading up for Justin Fields. You know, felt that that kind of way. They go for broke because. You know why save assets for the next GM? Like go go get the things you need right now. So I don't think he is, you know, GMing for his job. The only question I have is, is he allowed to not draft a quarterback this year? If he's deciding his evaluations of where they're at, if he decides, you know, they're not going to be able to get Stroud and Young. If he I like that you went here. Sold, I like that you went here because this is spicy. Keep going. Yeah, if he's not sold on these other guys. And as he and talking with Shane Steig and Jim Bob Cooter and everything else, and they are blown away by next year's crop of Caleb Williams and Drake May, and they think that is a franchise changer, are they allowed to just not draft quarterback Star Gardner Minshew and wait till next year? Is is Chris Ballard given his you know path to this point and not drafting quarterback? Would Jim Mercy buy that? That's I don't know the answer to that, but I think that's that's where I start to think like he's not jamming for his job, but I'm not sure he has the full, you know, untapped power that you might have as a first-year GM. It's that's an interesting scenario and one that I think will come up quite a bit from some from some corners of the internet. Just tank again and make sure you get the number one pick without having to trade up for it. Um, that's a risky play. Oh yeah, it's a risky play. Think about how bad the Colts were last season. They they still somehow managed to win four games. So a risky play trying to get back up to number one. Uh, the Texans, too. The Texans thought that they'd done everything they could possibly do to get the number one pick. And they failed at it. Yeah. They their, GM set, their GM set it all up on a tee. And the coach that he hired to just fire after that season said, I'm not doing your dirty work in this final game. Went for went for two in the win. And, um, and now the Texans picked second. So, yeah, it's incredibly yeah. hard so to it's, do. It's, and then not it's only harder. that, but it's going to be like this, next year, 
we have to see how it plays out, but it, it feels like it's going to be harder to trade a number one, if not impossible, because the whole thing this year is there's not that one quarterback that's no doubt above the others. Right now, the way they're talking about it is that Caleb Williams is on that trajectory. And if that's the case, the team picking number one has to not need a quarterback or else they're not trading you Caleb Williams. Just to underscore how hard it is to get to number to, to, to automatically get the number one pick. I thought in 2019, I thought that the Dolphins team, and everybody thought this, this wasn't just me, but I everybody kind of thought that that Dolphins team in 2019 was constructed to fail. And Brian Flores has since sued the NFL. And the Dolphins, did the Dolphins lose a, no, the Dolphins didn't lose a draft pick for this. They lost it for meddling. Um, but the Dolphins, the, Brian Flores has accused uh, Dolphins owner Stephen Ross of trying to fail that season, like overtly telling him we need to fail that season. That team won five games, <laughs> including beating the Colts. It is harder to tank to number one than I think people realize. It just is. You end up winning. It's in the NFL. You end up winning games uh, that you would think there's no way you should win them based on the talent you have uh, assembled. And and so I, I get like if you if you again I've always said if you think a guy's the guy you do whatever it takes to get him. And that I guess that includes tanking because whatever it takes is whatever it takes. It's just harder to do that than I think people realize. It's harder to really, truly tank to where you end up with the number one pick. Uh, I don't think the Bears were trying to tank, and they ended up with it. Uh, so it's 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 well, not quite as easy. It's not quite as easy as just assemble a bad roster. And honestly, if they, if that's what the Colts are trying to do, they should be doing a better, bigger sell-off. Well, I think. And I don't buy that that is what they're trying to do. That's just, you don't bring back a GM to have him tear down his own roster. That's just not how often how it goes. Chris Ballard is very proud of a lot of the players he's gotten here. He knows he has to fix some things, but he's not in the mindset of like, you know, we need to ship off DeForest Buckner and Michael Pittman and, you know, and Braden Smith. It, that's just not how GMs operate. New GMs will come in and do that. And so that was never really the timeline they were on. Um, also, you know, Jim Mercy spent, all of last season arguing that they weren't tanking. So it'd be quite a reversal to be like, well, now we are. Um, even though you could argue that it would be justifiable if you think Caleb Williams is that special. And I kind of think he is. Um, based on the little I've watched, the sense I've gotten, I think he does have incredibly special qualities. I think he's better than all the quarterbacks in this class. But, you know, we have to see how it plays out. Um, at the same time, though, what's interesting is, while it is very hard to get the only one team can get the number one pick, as you look around the league, there aren't that many teams that I think are going to be just no doubt terrible. Like most of them seem like they're trying to kind of go somewhere or have something like the Colts right now are a team that has the things they've added this off season, you know, a pro bowl kicker, you know, a good edge rusher, you know, but not really gone after the other holes that they have, especially on offense. You know, there, there absolutely is a world where they could get that number one pick, maybe even not, you know, it may not even take them doing a full teardown, trade everybody and just intentionally lose. Sometimes, like you said, the Bears got the number one pick by not necessarily trying to do that. Sometimes it happens if your team's just not very good. And we have to see where the Colts are going to go. There's, like I said, there's a lot of moves they can still do. I think they can be a competitive team next year based on how this breaks. But 
as it stands right now, the roster they have looks like one that could land the number one pick, don't you think? It could, but so does Arizona's. Yeah, they're not the only team, but I think it's hard to find many that are like if we create a tier of those type of teams, I think it'd be those. I still teams. don't like I still don't like Houston even with Bryce Young. Um Tampa could be really Tampa could be really bad. It could be. They they still have some Pro Bowl talent on that team. We'll see how Baker Mayfield does. Yeah, but the lesson of this Colts season is it doesn't matter if you had Pro Bowl talent in the wrong positions, if you don't have the quarterback situation in line figured out. Um, I do think the Texans will be better because they've got D'Amico Ryans. They'll have quarterback stability if they get Bryce Young and they just added Dalton Schultz and um, some good defensive players. Like I just think like a lot of – it just kind of goes both ways. Usually the teams that land number one is like they just have such a mess at the important positions like the Colts had um, when they didn't get number one. But like quarterback – will sing pretty well and then the bears are sort of the opposite where they had a quarterback and like pretty much nothing else at any other position <laughs> matters so there's different ways to get there and look it's it's not likely at all it's just an interesting idea and i only bring it up because it's not only that they may be thinking this now oh, it's what, fun to talk about it's absolutely fun to talk about and it would be very interesting if the colts actually did this well like one scenario i had was that that you mentioned earlier the idea of drafting will anderson at four and trying to get Hendon later. The risk of that, the, the reason I think that's a tough road to go down is that we have no idea where Hendon Hooker is actually going to go. Like we Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah just projected him at 23rd, and yeah. his note under it was not about his evaluation. His note under it was a lot of teams like him. Yeah, I think he which is was interesting to me. That was interesting to me. He's what I heard he's really impressing in the interviews, and it's no surprise when you hear him talk and, and you know kind of his background. But it's one of those where, like, for all we know, he could go even higher than that. He could go in the teens. For all we know, like, the Falcons mandate that they have to draft quarterback and they take him at number eight. I mean, I've seen drafts where guys like Jake Locker and Chris Hunter were top ten picks. So, like, you have no idea. <laughs> That's my favorite draft. That's my favorite draft. Because all you had to do in that draft – that's my favorite draft because all you had to do in that draft was not take a quarterback and you got like a 10-year player. <laughs> Unless you took the first quarterback, which was Cam Newton. Right, right. But after that, after that, it's just pro ballers and Hall of Famers and then little spots where someone took a quarterback and it failed miserably. Yep. Hilarious. Uh, but the reason I bring it up is that if you want to go down this idea of waiting for Hendon, I think you you would have to be open to the fact that if someone takes him, then you should wait till next year because who else is left? Who else is going to be a starting quarterback if five guys are off the board? And I think that's a fine plan, though. I just wonder if Chris Bowers is allowed to do it. Is he allowed to? Would that be? Would that pitch go through to Jim Mercer? Hey, we're gonna we're gonna select Will Anderson here. We're gonna try to get Hendon Hooker. If we can't, we'll just wait till next year. I just I don't know. I don't know if. We know Jim Mercy has been worn down like everyone has of not solving the quarterback position, not drafting one. They put it off. They put it off. And then you get in the road like you just mentioned where they could have this plan to try and get the number one pick. It's not the easy to pull off. If they get to next year and they have like pick five, but the top two teams are not trading out, I mean, it may not be better. I don't It's It's a very tricky scenario, but it's one that I'm curious if that's on the table or not. And I wonder if you'll get any insight in the owners' meetings to tell whether it is. Yeah, I do too. 
we right now we don't have any plans to uh, have me drive to Knoxville uh, next week. Whenever because uh, they he has the hookers pro day is the same day as um, Anthony Richardson's, uh, and Hooker won't be throwing because he has torn ACL. Um, but obviously you could get there and talk to him. But we don't have any plans to do that. We would we kind of decided we would need some kind of quote or smoking gun or something uh, to kind of make that make that decision um but it is an interesting one we're kind of rolling through stuff we're kind of rolling through some of the the wilder theories out here but ultimately what we're expecting is a quarterback pick at four or three and that's why nate's on the road right now um nate nate's gonna have stuff from will levis he's gonna get a chance to watch him at the pro day tomorrow hear what he says again he's got good stuff already uh and then i'll have the owners meetings uh, as a break for you guys uh, from the quarterback. Well, not really a break from the quarterback talk, but a break from the pro day talk um, next week. And then Nate is back on Nate is back in the sunshine state headed to Florida um, to Gainesville, which, you know, fine. At least it's, it's a step up from Jacksonville, maybe. Yeah, it's a step up from Jacksonville. We're we're just going to continue. We might just continue a tradition on this podcast of me just taking huge shots at most of Florida. Um, You'll be proud of me because I had two options to fly into either Jacksonville or Orlando, and or or at Tampa, I should say, and I chose Tampa. So I, I did yeah. that out of honor for you. I felt like the tiebreaker was honoring this podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's smart. That's smart. The funny thing is, the funny thing is, I'm going on vacation the week after the owners' meetings. I'll be in Florida, but I'll be in the Panhandle um, on 30A, uh, which I think a lot of people probably know where 30A is. It's it's right there on the beach, that kind of thing. That part of Florida, I'm fine with, and Miami, I'm fine with. It's the rest of Florida I have issues with, significant issues. Um, and because the, because Florida's in the NFL, this actually comes up. I actually hate the state of Kansas, like, way more. Oh, yeah. Boy, if it, that could become a bit on this podcast. Two Mizzou grads just dumping on Kansas. If the it's, Chiefs are like, well, the, if the, I would just keep pointing out that the Chiefs are Kansas City, Missouri, and that's an easy way to piss off Kansas. It's the sheer misery of what happens when you leave Kansas City going west. That's, that's, the, that's most of it for me. Um. But we don't have to deal with that here because, like you said, Kansas City is in Missouri. That's actually a good trip for me. I like that trip. Um, yep. Whereas, you know, some of these some of these Florida trips are not as fun. The Chiefs are Missouri's team, and Kansas just likes to claim them. I I wish I wish I could say uh, I was getting ready to go to spring training because the owners' meetings are in Arizona, but you don't really have time for that out there. Um, once once you're at the owners meetings, uh, I would love to. I, I did spring training uh, probably 10, maybe a little bit more than 10 years ago in Arizona and just loved uh, kind of getting to spend not very much money and sit pretty close and, and see all that stuff. But I will be busy talking to Colts people. I'm not I'm not going to be able to do that next week. Normally, normally a trip to Arizona in March would not be not be the worst thing as far as travel goes. I'd still rather do it than going to Gainesville, if we're being honest. I've only been to Gainesville once. I covered a basketball game. I covered an Auburn-Florida basketball game in Gainesville. And I, those trips were always very in and out. So 
This I think I hate some... out too because I going to Florida in March is also kind of cool because you can check out spring training. But I will not, not be Gainesville, well. <laughs> and not not Tampa either. Is there nothing in Tampa? Oh, there might is be. Is it further down? Uh, great question. I'm, I'm very in and out. My, so. my team, my teams play in Arizona, so I'm much more familiar with it with the Arizona layout. I know. I'll look it up. Um, I'll check it out next week, and maybe I'll just add that to the trip and be there for like a whole week. I'm sure, that'll go over well. Um. Well, Nate's gonna go enjoy the city of Lexington tonight. I I don't know if I'm saying that tongue in cheek or not. I've only been the only time I've been to Lexington was for a basketball game. It was kind of in and out. But Nate's Nate's gonna enjoy Lexington. He'll be at the at the Kentucky football facility to watch Will Levis throw tomorrow. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Uh, I'll be in Arizona starting on Sunday. Um, no official uh, access scheduled until Monday, but we will. If I get something, it'll def- definitely be up. There'll, there'll be Colts news coming here uh, over the next week, couple weeks or so, and then uh, not too long after that. Um, the Colts will open their offseason program. We'll get a chance to kind of see some of that stuff. But we know what you guys are. We know what you guys are are most concerned with, and that's why Nate's on the road at these pro days. The Colts Cover Two Podcast. I'm Joel A. Erickson. This has been Nate Atkins. Keep your dial tuned to IndyStar.com for everything leading up to the Colts making a draft pick, which we assume, assume, and you know what they say about people who assume will be a quarterback. Mm-hmm.